God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, your creator. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the, the youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the Lord blesses us in this way as we come to worship him. Let us worship God. Let us pray. Almighty God, your son Jesus Christ fed the hungry with the bread of his life and the word of his kingdom. Be present with us now, we pray. Renew your people with your heavenly grace, and in all our weakness, sustain us by your true and living bread, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. And he reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our first hymn is All Glory Be to Thee, Most High, number 102.
The apostle says, this is the message that we have heard from him, Jesus, and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. So we come to confess our sin together. We are all equal at this point and in many ways, but here especially, we come together as those who have sinned and yet rely upon God's grace for our new life with him. Let us pray together. Holy God, our thoughts and motives cannot be hidden from your sight. Our self-centeredness and pride, our sloth and greed, our anger and jealousy are laid bare before you. We have been arrogant and have exalted ourselves over others, even worship the blessings in place of you. Most merciful Lord, forgive all our sins for Christ's sake. Keep us from trusting in anything except Jesus Christ, our Savior. Pour out upon us your mercy and grant that we may be strengthened each day by your Holy Spirit and empowered to walk in the way that is pleasing to you and to serve you in the joy of the new freedom of Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. People of God, hear the good news. The saying is sure and worthy of of universal acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And you, Christian people, were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, I declare to you that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel. We say together, praise be to God. Holy family of our Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul exhorts the church in his letter to the Ephesians to lead a life worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then he lists these things with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He lists those things because those are the things that were uh, at odds in many of the churches in the first century and continue to be problems in uh, modern churches today. So those, we need to hear the apostles' words. Christian character includes humility. Our Lord was humble, and the Holy Spirit creates humility in us. Like our Lord, we are made in, in his image. In the epistle, humility is literally lowliness of mind, and it's contrasted with being high-minded or haughty. As a God-given virtue, it acknowledges one's true defects, but also one's gifts. We have things that we've been given that we are good at, skills, different things that we can say that we can be confident that this is something I can use, this is something I can do for others. But we also have our failings and our weaknesses. We all have limits to what we can do and what we understand. And some of those limits are because of who we are as an individual, but others are because of our sin. A humble person recognizes these limits and acknowledges them. We're not to think of ourselves as greater than we are. Humility is accepting the reality about ourself. As our Lord creates humility in us, submit to him as the one who is greater than we are and upon whom we depend for all things. 
Consequently, we are set free from thinking too highly of ourselves, and we can praise God and serve others. You were called in Christ to be humble. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ. Let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 161, O Christ, our hope, our heart's desire. Let us bring our prayers to our Lord, who is gracious and merciful, who hears us through Jesus Christ and acts according to his will. Let us pray. O Lord and Father of your blessed people in Christ, our Lord and Father, we thank you for the gift of faith inspired by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for calling us, that you've called us to yourself and consecrated us to your service. We thank you for having set us apart to the sacred ministry of prayer. Our Father, we do pray. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those who are our opponents, who line up against us. We pray for people who would disturb our peace, who would interrupt our worship, the worship of the church, who would try to force us to act and think like they do. We pray for selfish people who would take what we have and for rude people who uh, hurt us. We pray for people who disrupt the church's work 
and its ministry and try to shut it down. Hear our prayers for those who are against us. For those who have less than we do and those who have special needs, for those who suffer any sickness or weakness, we pray you'd give them health and strength. For those who are disturbed and troubled, we pray for them and ask that you'd give them rest and understanding. And to all who are lonely and alienated, we pray that there would be a um, better uh, development of fellowship and friendship and love in our society. For those who come to mind, hear our prayers. For those in captivity who are forbidden to see their families or live in freedom, and for the church in whose lands where it is unlawful to sing your praise and worship you, or where where the church must endure great persecution, we pray for these Christians. We know there are many in places like Iraq, Syria, Palestine, Iran, Egypt, North Korea, Myanmar, China, Central America. And so even though that we have relative uh, freedom and, and peace here, we pray for our many brothers and sisters who do not have these things. And we pray you would, would bless them and hold their faith firm in Christ and that you would um, bring peace to these places for the church. Hear our prayers. Almighty Father, we pray for the leaders of our country, for Joe Biden, our president, for Gary Peters, Debbie Stabenow, our senators, Gretchen Whitmer, our governor, and our state representatives. Grant them wisdom and moral discernment for what is right and what is wrong when they show foolishness and poor moral judgment, we pray you would stop those policies. We pray for good moral order and justice and peaceful protest. Give the church freedom to preach and teach the scriptures so that we may serve you. Hear our prayers for those who lead us. And we do pray for the church. Most glorious God, in all its breadth and its humanity, we know there is the struggle with pride and worldly power in your church. We pray that the church would be content with simplicity and silence many times when silence is better than, than uh, puffing up. We pray for the church with its great resources, but also its poverty, its weakness, its foolishness and unbelief, that it would recognize that it's dependent upon you and cannot try to go off on its own. We pray for the church in its many different uh, parts. We pray for these churches to be united in one faith in Jesus Christ and in one mission and witness to him. We pray you would give courageous proclamation of your word in our society, and around the world. Here are prayers for the churches that come to mind. For the missionaries of the OPC, for Sam and his wife, Sam Folta, his wife, Mike McCabe, and his wife in Asia. We also pray for the churches in this presbytery and for Redeemer, OPC, and Ada, 
and the pastors in that church, Jeff DeBoer, Dan Adams, Jonathan Lowrup, and for New Life Fellowship in Holland and their pastor, Martin Novak. Here are prayers for the OPC missionaries and the pastors in our presbytery. Our Father, whose hand upholds us in the grace and love of Jesus Christ, tend to this church and our friends. Grant your healing mercy and grace to those who are in the midst of hardship. We pray for Shirley and Eduardo, for Terry, for Fawn and Jeff, for Frida, the Kelly family, and our friends, Mrs. Mesner and Becky, Angie, Phil, Tom, Bill, Judy, Chris Barker, Karen, and others we name to you in silence. For all those who are discouraged, resentful, hurt, and who have failed to obey you, we pray for your grace to give them the counsel that they need and the power to forgive, the strength to resist temptation, and the willingness to obey. Help us to love one another and comfort each other according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and may we bear witness to Christ outside the church. We pray you would bless Providence Church to be able to grow and to um, adapt and, and work with the changes that are happening all around us and uh, within us, and we pray you would help us to grow and have enough money and that new people would come and be joined with us. These things, these prayers, we bring to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
And now let us pray our prayer for illumination as we prepare to hear God's word read and preached. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would um, so impress upon our hearts and minds the, the truth of your promises, of your presence with us and provision for us in Christ, that we would be set free from fear to walk in peace and hope and in joy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We begin our reading in Malachi. Chapter 3, the first five verses. Hear now God's word. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Our Psalter response is printed in the bulletin from Psalm 69. I will praise the name of God with a song. This will please the Lord more than an ox. When the humble see it, they will be glad. For the Lord hears the needy. Let heaven and earth praise him. For God will save Zion. And people shall dwell there and possess it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Our epistle reading is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Our gospel reading is from Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The word of the Lord. Mark concludes Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders at the temple with a warning and an example. These are the last two pericopes. Pericope is a fancy word for saying a passage. Um, um, but anyway, it's the word I used. And it, it's at the end of chapter 12. So the last two little uh, stories are, um, are these, this one that we heard this morning and the next one, which is about a widow. They go together, they both mention widows, but they're also distinct, and we'll take one then the other. Today our lesson is Jesus' warning, it's just that first uh, story, the second to last story in 12. In one respect, it's a moral lesson. Verse 38 says, beware of scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. It's really a, it's, it's a moral expose. It's exposing the morality and behavior of, these, these, uh, of the scribes and Jewish leaders. The scribes are the ones who are called out. They're named here. Jesus exposes a certain kind of moral behavior as morally wrong. So it's a moral lesson. Now, there's an irony in our society. An irony is where two things that don't seem to get, go together are put together. We live in a society that has become morally unhinged. That's kind of become my new word for our society. It's just unhinged. The traditional moral code, the moral accumulation of the past, the wisdom of our forebears, the knowledge of God's moral order has all been tossed aside. People bristle at someone telling them how to behave, what's right and what's wrong. Ours is a society of moral freedom or moral license. People today want to be free to do what they want. The desire has been growing, but it has been this way for some time. We shouldn't think it's just started happening in the 21st century. It's been going on before that, but it really has picked up speed. Be, happy, uh, be who you are, be happy, be free, be whoever you want to be. So I looked up some hippie slogans from the 60s, and that's one of them. Be who you are, be happy, be free, be whoever you want to be. So it's been going on for a while. Our society wants a moral freedom rooted in ourselves. You be you and I will be me. What is right for me may not be right for you. What's right for you may not be right for me. These are all slogans we hear in our society. We don't like it when our moral behavior is called out, like Jesus' expose of the scribes. 
When the moral judgment is turned on us, we get defensive and we deflect it. Yet our society, this is the other side of the irony, our society does not mind it when the moral finger is pointed at other people, right? Especially when they are our op- opponents. People today do not, mind if, uh, do not mind it if those in power are morally called out, like the police or the rich or politicians or Christians. People with middle or low income do not mind if the rich are exposed for moral failure, but don't expose the, little, uh, the low or middle income people for their moral failure. Those who are secular are pleased when the ro- moral wrongs of religious people are discovered. Christians do not mind if the moral weaknesses of the Muslims are called out. When the moral sins of a disliked fellow Christian, maybe from a different denomination or whatever, when that comes to light, we use it as justification for our rejection of him or her of that church. So in keeping with each person exercising his or her own moral judgment, detached from anything higher than ourselves, people today have no problem saying what they believe is wrong with other people. It all fits into that sort of that moral freedom we think we have. It's okay for me to expose you, judge you, but don't you do it to me. Well, Jesus' moral warning today is aimed at the people of God. In our text, it's the scribes. It's a, it's a warning against arrogance and vainglory. Now, there's a word that's old, right? You haven't probably heard that in a while, vainglory. It's really just two words put together, vain, empty, glory. But it fits well with what Jesus is talking about in our lesson. Vainglory is an inordinate pride in oneself and one's achievements. Vainglory is an inordinate pride in oneself and one's achievements. So even if this word is not used as much today as it once was, vainglory is still quite common. In the Bible, it comes up a lot. It comes up over and over again, like the Pharisee who was praying in the temple, and nearby was a tax collector who was also praying, and the Pharisee prayed. Remember his prayer, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he took great pride in himself and his achievements. However, these things that he had done were nothing before God. It's an empty pride. Jesus tells us to beware of arrogance and vainglory because they can take hold of us. Just because it's an old word doesn't mean it's not a current problem. Now, our text is a moral lesson on arrogance and vainglory, but it is a moral lesson that's placed, and I think this is important. I didn't see this at first when I was working on the sermon, but as I went along, I realized it's important to realize that it's placed at the end of the conflict stories in this section of the Gospel of Mark. In other words, Jesus' teaching has a context. This, this lesson he's giving, this moral lesson, has a context in the Gospel. And as I said, it is at the end of the escalated conflict between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. The section, this section begins at chapter 11 with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on his way to the cross. Once he was in Jerusalem, Jesus disrupted the money changers and the animal sellers in the court of the Gentiles in the temple, thus interrupting the activity of the sacrifices. 
The next day, he returned to the temple, and that's where the several stories of conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders took place. We might forget that, but if you go back to chapter 11, verse 27, it says, And Jesus and his disciples came again to Jerusalem, so they'd entered already, went to the temple. Jesus disrupted the sacrifice, uh, sacrifices going on. Then they left. And the next day, Mark says in chapter 11, verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they confronted him. And so we get those series of stories about that. Different Jewish leaders challenged Jesus, the priests. Remember, it was like all the different kinds of Jewish leaders are all mentioned. The priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Now, Mark placed our text this morning at the end of the conflict dialogue between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Chapter 13, the next chapter that that comes along, opens with Jesus leaving the temple and talking to his disciples without the Jewish leaders present. So there's a change of of who is with Jesus, and um, he's beginning to leave the temple. But he hasn't done that yet in chapter 12. Our lesson this morning, while it is about arrogance and vainglory, relates to the opposition of the Jewish leaders to Jesus. See, it's not a standalone moral lesson, which is the way we might want to take it, as a lesson about hypocrisy or something like that, or arrogance or whatever. It's not that standing alone. It comes at the end of the conflict between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. And it gets at what was wrong with the Jewish leaders, Jesus names the scribes, but this was not only a scribe problem. When I preached on the conflict between the Sadducees and Jesus earlier in the chapter, I said the Sadducees were known for being contemptuous. And the Pharisees considered themselves more pure than other Jews. They were the pure ones. So at the root of the Jewish leader's conflict with Jesus was arrogance and vainglory. And this, this story, this lesson that Jesus gives kind of puts a punch at the end of those, that conflict. Now, we, we could say it's sin, right? We could boil it down and say it's sin, but it's helpful to define what the sin is, especially if we want to watch out for, for it taking hold of us. One of the theological questions the church has considered is, what is the root of sin? It's a question that's been asked and considered for basically the whole life of the church. It goes back to the story of the first man and woman in the Garden of Eden. That would be the natural place you would go, the primeval, the, the uh, quintessential story of, of man uh, being seduced and, and tempted and, and sinning. God gave the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, the fruit of all the trees to eat, except, he said, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then do you remember what the serpent, just a a little bit later, uh, the serpent comes and tempts Adam and Eve and says, you shall surely not die. It's like God just said, you shall surely die. And the serpent comes along and says, you shall surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you know the story. You know that the man and the woman listened to the serpent, ate the forbidden fruit from the tree. <clears throat> so what's the basic sin here? Our catechism says sin is disobedience, it's lawlessness, not obeying God's commandments. But what lies behind man's disobedience? Well, John Calvin said it's unbelief. 
Adam and Eve did not believe God's word and chose to obey the serpent's word, right? You, they, they received God's word about the tree, the fruit, and the serpent comes along and says basically the opposite. So which one are they going to go with? They didn't believe God's word. <clears throat> they obeyed the serpent's word. They didn't believe God. So John Calvin would see the basic sin as unbelief. Others have said it's an act of selfishness, trying to assert their will over God's will. It was God's will that they not eat from the fruit of the tree, and they assert their will over God's will. They wanted to go their own way. Basically, it's rebellion. And then Augustine said the fundamental sin was pride or hubris. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, which is what the serpent said, didn't he? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, I want, I want that. And so there was this wanting to be like God, which they can't be, but there's pride in that. There's hubris in that. So Augustine saw the basic root of sin as pride. <clears throat> now, if you reflect on yourself for a moment, you probably can detect all three of these roots to your sin. Behind our sin, we can find unbelief. We can find rebellion, asserting our will over God's will. We can find sinful pride. Now, there can be a good pride, but the kind of pride that's the root of sin is not good. That's why it's called sinful pride. Now, sinful pride has a constellation of related sins around it. There's been a lot of talk about the telescope on that spacecraft that, that went deep into space and uh, all the images it's sending back, so naturally I start thinking about constellations and orbits. <clears throat> sinful pride has a constellation of related sins around it. In the orbit of pride are things like conceit, self-love, haughtiness, arrogance. These are all things that are, are circling around or kind of in the orbit of, of um, pride. Now, the word arrogance is, close, is related to pride. It comes from a Latin word meaning to feel one has a right to demand certain attitudes and behaviors from other people. Arrogance. To feel like you have the right to demand and expect certain behaviors and attitudes from other people. For example, taking credit for something that was really a team effort. This would be like a sports interview with a quarterback who was asked how his team won the game. And the quarterback says with a big smile, it was me. I did it. I threw 25 passes for 20 receptions. I ran the ball for 50 yards. I had no sacks. It was me. He arrogantly dismisses his front line that protected him so that he could throw the passes and run the ball. In addition, he arrogantly ignores the defense that kept the other team from scoring. Or if we go back to the Pharisee who was in the temple with the tax official in Luke chapter 18, who prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Notice the I, I, I in his prayer. He's asserting himself. He thanked God that he was not like the moral degenerates, but he bases it on what he does, that I fast twice a week. I give the tithes of all that I get. So there's arrogance there. Those are examples of arrogance, of uh, demanding certain attitudes and behaviors from other people. He expected that tax collector to recognize that he is the righteous one, the Pharisee. Well, arrogance lies behind what Jesus exposed with the scribes and by implication the Jewish leaders. They believed they had a right to demand the people to honor and revere them. That's arrogance. Jesus says in our 
lesson, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Now, the long robe was an outer garment the scribes wore when they were at prayer or engaged in other religious activities. Now, I'm keenly aware of the fact that I am standing here wearing a gown. (laughs) Does that mean that I should not be wearing a gown when I lead worship? It would if I expected you to revere me and I demanded that you honor me as a minister of the word. See, that's arrogance. There are ministers who do this. It's not the attitude of Christ who came to be served, not to be served, but to serve. That's not his attitude. But the answer is not to get rid of the robe. Jesus does not say it's wrong to wear a robe. He calls out the attitude of the scribes. What they were doing was arrogant. So whether we wear a robe or not, we can still act with arrogance. And I've met many Christians, people, maybe not many, but I've met Christians, people in blue jeans or glamorous clothes, either one way or the other, who demand honor and expect to be revered. They're arrogant, and they don't wear a robe. In the Reformed tradition, just so you know, the robe is actually is, is really considered an academic gown. So this is a gown that signifies the ministry of the word. There's a training and an ordination that's necessary for the ministry of the word. We see that in Scripture, and, and uh, it's been carried forward in the Reformed tradition. And it's, it's considered important lest there be ignorance and self-service that brings disrepute to the office. Now, it's not automatic. It's not like wearing the gown is going to stop that, but it is to indicate that there is some, something the church has done and, and something has been, has, has, has been uh, transmitted with me to the church uh, for the office and that that's important. Um, if you notice, I only wear the gown when I'm conducting a worship service. I don't walk around out you know, there I try to get it off as quick as I can because actually it gets kind of hot. <clears throat> so I don't wear it except for worship service and for marriage ceremonies. It helps identify my office, which is my office is to serve you with the word of God. It's the ministry of the word. The gown I wear is not to say I'm some special kind of Christian in the church, holier than you are, or to say I'm more privileged than you are. It's, it's not to indicate that at all. Every Christian has a vocation from God, and together we serve the Lord, each in his or her own calling. So Jesus condemns the scribes for wearing long robes in order to be seen and admired for their piety. The greetings in the public square that the the Jewish leaders expected, the scribes and Jewish leaders expected, were formal greetings. They weren't just, hi, how are you? They were formal greetings. They were salutations that showed deference and superiority. They're that kind of a greeting. These greetings paid homage and admiration. And once again, Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to use formal greetings or show honor to someone or even admire someone. It's a problem when it arises out of arrogance, when I expect you and demand that you do that because I am better than you. Finally, Jesus mentions the seats of honor at the synagogues and at banquets. The Jewish leaders expected to sit in those seats. On more than one occasion, Jesus calls this out. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told the parable of the wedding feast, which instructs his disciples to take the lowest seat. Remember this? 
It's in Luke 14. But when you, were in, when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Once more, it's not wrong to sit in a place of honor. What's wrong is to arrogantly expect it or demand it. So the root of the scribes and the Jewish moral wrong was pride or arrogance. But that's not all. There's also vainglory. Vainglory is related to arrogance. It's a type of arrogance, but it's a little more specific. It's inordinate pride in oneself or one's accomplishments. So while arrogance is demanding that others show uh, respect and you know, honor uh, to the person, vainglory is an inordinate pride, a pride that goes beyond who it's really for in, or, in oneself and one's achievements. And it concerns the proper end for glory. Remember, glory is part of the word, vainglory. So what's the proper end for the glory? There's nothing wrong with seeking glory. Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, gives a very helpful de- definition of glory. Glory is, some, is, uh, is someone's excellence known and approved by others. I thought that was an easy way to put it. Excellence is someone's excellence known and approved by others. God is excellent in who he is and what he does. He's the most excellent. In the book of Revelation, the host of heaven are gathered before the throne of God, and they sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So in heaven, the excellence of God's glory is known and approved. When Jesus came, the Gospel of John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's glory was fully revealed in Jesus Christ, and because he became man, John says it was known in the world. And we in the church praise God and worship him, which is showing our approval. In a lesser way, glory can also be something that we have. In a lesser way, it's not equal to God's glory, but in a lesser way. So, if a woman rescues a child from drowning at a beach... The excellence of her action is known to those on the beach, not to mention the parents and the child, uh, the child herself. The, patients, uh, the parents, with tears in their eyes, say thank you. And the story makes the news where this woman is praised for her selfless act of heroism. There's glory in that. An athlete competes in a race seeking a gold medal. He wins, and the glory of the excellence of his running is displayed as he receives the gold medal. And what does everyone do? They stand around and they clap while he's receiving it. They're showing their approval. So it's right to receive glory when excellence is revealed. However, seeking glory can also be vain or empty. And again, Aquinas is helpful on this. He says there are three ways that seeking glory is vain. The first is seeking glory for that which is unworthy of glory. So holding the record for swindling the most people out of their savings is not glorious. If you have that record, please expunge it from, do reparation, do something. It doesn't display what's good. It should not be approved. Swindling is not excellent. It's stealing. Many movies glorify that which is not glorious. 
like the movie The Wolf of Wall Street that came out in 2013. So I haven't seen the movie, but according to Wikipedia, the film sparked controversy over its perceived morally ambiguous depiction of events and acts. Morally ambiguous. It was intentionally morally ambiguous. Uh, it, 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 the way it depicted events and the lack of sympathy for victims as well as explicit intimate content, extreme profanity, depiction of hard drug use, and the use of animals during production. The movie actually set the Guinness Book of World Records for the most swearing in a film. Now, I don't know if that's held up these, these years later, but it has the most swearing in the film. It was nominated for many awards, including Best Picture, and Leonardo DiCaprio won the Best Actor Award. It was a huge commercial success also. Those who created this movie sought glory for something that they produced that celebrated that which is not glorious. Extreme vulgarity, the exploitation of women, drug abuse is not excellent. It should not be ambiguous. It demands, it demeans people and it's destructive. Seeking glory for that which is not glorious is vain. So that's one way that there can be vain glory. A second way is seeking glory, uh, seeking glory may be vain because uh, based on one's own judgment. <clears throat> so, for example, a suicide bomber seeks glory for his cause. In his judgment, killing innocent lives displays glory and it's worthy of approval. But killing the innocent is not good and should not receive approbation. God says, thou shalt not kill. And then thirdly, Aquinas says, not referring the glory to its proper end is vain. So it's, um, it can be, uh, it, glory can be vain. It can be vain glory because uh, it's un, the, whatever the glory is is unworthy of glory. Or it can be vain because it's based on our own judgment that's flawed about what is glorious. And thirdly, it's uh, not referring the glory to its proper end. This is probably one of the more common ones. This is what would happen if a minister preached the word of God and the glory of God is displayed with, you know, through the preaching of the word, but the minister takes pride in the glory for himself. What is, what is the due end for the preaching of the word? The glory of God. Right? Not the preacher's glory. What's the end for our piety or your piety in Christian acts and this worship? The glory of God. That's what's so horrible about churches that begin to redirect the worship to themselves or to whatever is pleasing to them. It's, it's moving it away from the proper end for worship, the glory of God. And the glory is due God and the excellence of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's the proper end for the glory in Christian acts and worship. The due end of the glory may also be for our neighbor. It's for God, but it can also be for our neighbor. But it's vain when we take it for ourselves. Glory that that is rightly for our neighbor, but we take it for ourselves. So a politician delivers food to a poor family and then makes sure he's the center of attention and uses it for his campaign, and it's all just about him. The proper end for delivering food to the hungry is for their glory. If we turn the glory for, our, for others to ourselves, then it's vain glory. So back to the Jewish leaders, this is what they were doing. They were practicing vain glory because they were acting like they should receive the glory that's really due to God and their neighbor. You know, the scribes and Pharisees had these, these positions. 
They were to, to minister to the people. The scribes were experts in the, the scripture and the law, and they, that was to be taught to the people for their benefit. They were handling what God had given for the instruction and upbuilding of his people. The glory of teaching scripture belongs to God. But the scribes were displaying their learning for themselves. As Jesus said, they liked to walk around in long robes, and they liked to be saluted in the public square. The glory they were seeking was vain glory. The Jewish leaders were supposed to be helping the people by instructing them in God's commandments and offering the sacrifices. In fact, they were taking advantage of the weak like the widows, and Jesus mentions that. They expected the people to revere and honor them as their spiritual leaders. However, the glory was used for their own gain. See, they were probably what Jesus is referring to is taking the property of the widows. They're, they're weak, they're vulnerable, they don't have anyone to defend them, so it was easy to take their property and the gains from that, whether they sold it or kept it. Today we hear stories of Christian leaders using their position to abuse members of the church. They glory that it, the glory that is rightly for the church is taken by the leaders for themselves, and that's vain glory. Arrogance and vainglory are bad enough, and if I stopped right here, it would be mostly just a moral lesson. But when they become mixed with piety, then they become particularly reprehensible. So it's one thing when you find it in the world, and in the secular world, and people are doing this, that's terrible, and it's wrong. But it even becomes worse when you find Christian people doing it, when it gets mixed with piety. Jesus warns us, he warns his followers against it. He says, beware. And he's saying that to his followers. They shall receive the greater condemnation. He promises that. Not simply because arrogance and vainglory in the church is demanding and empty, or that the glory is not directed to the proper end, but also because it's contrary to the gospel. So this isn't just a moral lesson. It's contrary to the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus coming in humility to restore us to God. Philippians says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant or a slave. Jesus' act is excellent. What he did is excellent, and it deserves praise. But Jesus did it for us. He didn't do it for his own sake. Arrogance in the church is not following Jesus. We can be arrogant in our theology. We can be arrogant in how we live our life as Christians. We can be arrogant in our evangelism. That's not reflecting the excellence of Jesus Christ. And vainglory is also contrary to the gospel. Seeking glory for that which does not belong to you is empty. Church leaders seeking approval for their work are diverting the glory of the excellence of God's work to themselves. Christians who act like they're responsible, like they own the church and its mission and have assumed the excellence of God's work for themselves, and that's vainglory. And when the church lords it over each other, that is empty glory because the Lord is Lord of the church, and he is excellent in his lordship. He is rightly to be praised, not us. Jesus warns us not to be arrogant and, not to, and to be careful not to seek vainglory. He is excellent in the work of freeing us from sin, freeing us from arrogance and vainglory, and converting us into his faithful followers. Let us approve of his saving work and praise him, not ourselves. Let us pray.
Our Lord, mercifully receive the praise of your people who hear your word and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith with the creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe, Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 252, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Thank you. 
invites us to his table. In this meal, Jesus gives himself to us to feed us, meaning that he's the source of our new life with God. And speaking of the reality of that new life that he gives us, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. It's no good if we hear the gospel, we believe it, and we go out into the world trying to work from our own ability and power. We'll always find ourselves um, just petering out, falling out, and unable to, to uh, continue or even do much. So the Lord is who strengthens us and nourishes us every Lord's day. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in order to seal the promise of his sustaining us with his own life, he instituted the sacrifice of the Lord's Supper. It's not a bare sign. There's actually the Lord using it. It's a means of grace. He uses it to strengthen us and to feed us and to build us up um, together as the community of Christ serving him. The Lord Jesus Christ, in the night when he was arrested, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal is set apart with those words. That's why they're said every single time we celebrate it. It is not a regular, ordinary, common kind of meal. It is set apart by our Lord with those words. And it is the Lord's table. Here he joins us together. Those who come to this holy meal promise to trust and love and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life. There's a covenant renewal going on here that he is our Lord. We are his people. We are to serve him and honor him and trust him and obey him above everything else. And we are to live in love and concern for each other because it's not just a covenant between me as an individual and the Lord. But it's us together. It's, it's the family, the community of Christ's people. So all who have been baptized, who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and are communicant members of a Christian church, are invited to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for our new life and salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Father, you are rightly praised. The glory for your work of creation and redemption rightly belongs to you to no to no other. You made the world, you love your creation, you've shown that by sustaining it. You gave your son Jesus Christ to be our Savior. His right dying and rising has set us free from sin and death. And so we gladly thank you and praise you. And we do so along with the communion of saints, those on heaven and earth, and all the hosts of heaven, the angels, praising you, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. We praise and bless you, loving Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, and as we obey his command by your Holy Spirit, we pray that our eating of this bread and drinking of this cup may be for us a communion in the body and blood of your dear Son. Father, we remember all that Jesus did, his incarnation, his service, ministry here on earth, his death, his rising to new life and ascending to your right hand. And all these things we recall as we come to this table. 
And in Him, we plead with confidence His sacrifice made once and for all upon the cross. With the bread of life and the cup of your salvation, we proclaim His death and resurrection until He comes to glory. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. As He comes in glory, we, come, we wait with faith, and we say with the church, Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you restored our life. Lord Jesus, come in glory. Lord of all life, help us to work together to bear witness to the day when your kingdom comes and there is justice and mercy and good moral order seen in all the earth. Look with favor on your people, gather us in your loving arms, bring us with all your people to feast at your table in heaven. Through Christ and with Christ and in Christ in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory are yours, O loving Father, forever and ever. And we offer our thanksgiving with one voice, and we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Almighty, gracious, heavenly Father, we give you eternal praise and thanks that through your holy gospel and this sacrament, you have again offered and presented to us your most precious treasure, the true bread of heaven and food of eternal life, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we heartily ask you to grant that we may receive him and partake of him in true faith, now and forever, and be so nourished by his flesh and blood that we may be set free from all evil and increase daily in all goodness to your glory. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Final hymn is number 652, Savior, Teach Me Day by Day. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen.
Good morning. I am looking at the insert in the bulletin, and I will point out some items for your attention, beginning with our Christian education class today on um, the Christian life. This little book um, consisting of excerpts from John Calvin. Today we'll be uh, talking about uh, prayer. Elder Roberts will be leading a class on prayer, something that uh, I think we sort of take for granted, but it would do us well to consider the the place of prayer in our lives and and what God is doing in calling us to prayer. Friday evening prayer is on the 22nd, Um, Friday the 22nd at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Cowles, 6.30. Also, I don't know that we've talked much about this, but Pastor Jeff has been in contact with some uh, officials at Lawrence Tech University in an attempt to get uh, some connection with students there on campus uh, through perhaps a prayer, a prayer meeting. And we have an opportunity coming up to man a table, I think yet this month before classes start, or excuse me, August before classes start in the fall. So there'll be more information on that, but pray for that. And finally, um, as you know, the church has experienced transition in the form of families moving west and moving on. And so our, our, our membership has reduced in size. And, and accordingly, the budget, um, which is on this insert and on the bottom of the back page, um, giving is not keeping up with the budget that we set out for the year, so just be aware of that. It's something the church, it's a reality we face, and consider what you can do in response to that need. So thank you. That's all I have. Uh, yeah, Julie, do you have any questions? Well, I was actually going to bring you up. So <clears throat> do you have any instructions for us about prayer at your house? Like there's a, the meal part of it? Oh, no. Are you providing everything, or do you want us to bring something? No. It will be Mediterranean. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but maybe if you could let me know email or if you're coming, so I know Do those who, if they're coming, like Mediterranean? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's only Mr. Rock. I don't know. Um, Yeah, so Terry asked me that. He's helped in the past. And um, it's still, we're still locked out of it. So the question was, can we get back to our jail ministry, Oakland County Jail? Yes. Um, But no, at this point, no. There have been some emails about activities that that 
that the um, chaplains there try to organize, you know, like, I don't know, food or distribution things for families of, of jail. But I haven't seen much on that, and no, we're not able to get back in yet. So... Now, going from the sublime, the beautiful, to the <clears throat> banal, <laughs> we need a couple bottles of toilet bowl cleaner. <laughs> so someone would take it upon themselves to, to get a couple, of, unless it's somewhere where I can't find it, so we're just about out, and that's kind of an important thing. So just, just FYI. And we're okay right now, at least the men's side, but... Um, Linda. Trimming bushes. So this Saturday. Ten o'clock. Okay. So a little landscaping work, trimming work. Uh, scheduled for next Saturday. And cleaning and cleaning the inside of the building also. Okay. Okay. Great. Very good. Thank you. You are dismissed. <laughs>